Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 9, and we are going to look at what Jesus describes as true greatness. As we've journeyed through the gospel of Mark, Jesus, we see Jesus getting closer and closer to the cross. We see Jesus has gone about healing. He's gone about preaching. He's gone about delivering. He's gone about serving as the servant king. He has used his strength as a leader to serve those who are overlooked, those who are hurting, those who are broken, those who are suffering. And he is headed to a cross to suffer and die for the sins of the world because this is what he came to do. As I've mentioned over and over that the key verse in the gospel of Mark is Mark ten forty five. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so we see Jesus, the king, the Messiah with all power Using that power and strength and compassion to serve those who are marginalized and overlooked. And we see him training his disciples to do the very same thing. And here in this passage of Mark, we see a low point in the lives of the disciples. We see them arguing about who's going to be the greatest. We see them uh, being exclusive uh, towards those who aren't in their inner circle. And we see Jesus teaches them what true greatness looks like because no doubt they have been influenced by, quote, the the leaven of the Pharisees and and of Herod, the worldly ways of doing things. And and, And in their mind, they have an idea of what greatness looks like for the Messiah. And in their mind, they have an idea of what greatness looks like for themselves. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. Verse 30, and let me pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, would you speak to us? And would you teach us what true greatness looks like? And would you teach us to follow the way of Jesus? The way of humility and service and sacrifice. The way of love. Would you give us a clear vision Of what you have for each of us individually and as a church. And may we walk in this true greatness that is portrayed in this passage. And may we exalt Jesus as the ultimate great one. Who has shown us the way. And who has become the ultimate sacrifice. The only sacrifice for our sin. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mark 9, verse 30. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And they did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. And they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what, are, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, 
they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking them in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a, gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. All God's people said, Amen. So here is the big idea from this passage this morning. Jesus displayed and called his followers to true greatness. That is marked by humility and service. Jesus displayed and he called his followers to true greatness that is marked by humility and service. The first thing I want to point out in this this section, verse 30 through 32 is that Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection. So here is the greatness of Jesus put on display ultimately. He had lived his life before his disciples, pouring his life out to serve and help others. He had honored the Father and did the Father's work that the Father had called him to do, and that, and that, that was centered around serving and loving people. And so Jesus poured his life out and he was moving to the cross where he would display God's love for us. That he would ultimately serve humanity by becoming the sacrifice for our sins. The atonement, the the, the lamb of God, the, the bringing salvation to us, meeting the greatest need that we had as human beings, as fallen sinners. He predicted his death and his resurrection here for the second time in Mark. He had already told the disciples this gospel content that he was going to, to, to suffer and die. And that he would rise again. Okay? Now notice this, that the disciples did not understand the saying. And they were afraid to ask. Okay? So again, we have Jesus telling the disciples clearly, this is what's going to happen. This is what I came to do as the Messiah, the Son of Man. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. But they didn't get it. Once again, they didn't get it. They didn't understand and they were afraid to ask. Okay? Now, Jesus knew that his time was coming Soon, and so he had spent some time privately teaching his disciples. He had, he was explaining to them the cross, the resurrection, and he was teaching them about true greatness. And he mentioned again that it's time for the Son of Man to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, who was he talking about when he said, that 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, or he's going to be handed over into the hands of men. Who is he talking about? Because we know that Judas betrayed Jesus. We know that the Jews had been plotting to kill Jesus and put him on trial unjustly. And we know that the Romans eventually carried that execution out and killed Jesus. But who was it ultimately that had Jesus delivered up? In Mark chapter 9, or Luke chapter 9, verse 44 and 45, Luke has a, a couple different aspects uh, of, this, um, of this scene. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they, do not under, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They didn't get it. It was concealed from them. They didn't understand what was going on. Later on, Peter did get it. At Pentecost, after Jesus was raised from the dead and they, they saw Jesus raised from the dead and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter's preaching at Pentecost to thousands of Jews, and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because he was it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter gets that ultimately... It was God's plan and God's hand who sent Jesus to the cross. Though the, 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 the Romans and the Jews had him crucified, though Judas betrayed Jesus for a little bit of money with a kiss, ultimately this was the plan of God and this is how God was going to work to bring salvation to those who put their trust in Christ. And here we see this pro the profound truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility working together. God held holds people accountable for their sins and it's it's sin to murder the son of God. To come against and murder and reject the son of God. Yet this was God's plan. And ultimately, it was God's doing. Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was smitten and afflicted. You see, Jesus bore our sin, the judgment that we deserve for our sin at the cross. He took our place. He became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the disciples struggled to grasp and understand the idea of a crucified Messiah. They're thinking, no, the Messiah is going to fight. The Messiah is going to overcome. The, the Messiah is not going to be crucified. They had a hard time recon reconciling Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 with the other Old Testament passages about the Messiah. 
And so we see that, that God delivered up Jesus. We're, we're told Jesus himself said in 45, he said, For the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He said in John that no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. He could have called legions of angels when he came, when the, when the Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Jesus could have called angels and he could have fought and warred against those Roman soldiers. But he had this mission of laying his life down as a sacrifice for our sins, humbly. And in this, we see the Son of God we see the greatness and the glory and the beauty of the Son of God pouring himself out in humility and service on your behalf and my behalf. And the disciples missed it. They missed it. They didn't get it. They didn't grasp it. They needed the gospel truths of Jesus' death and resurrection to sink in and change their perspective of what true greatness looks like. Because they're still thinking in terms of power and position and exercising authority over people. Because the next thing we see is that they are arguing about who's going to be greatest. You know you missed the point of the gospel when you're, when you're focused on who's greater in your group. Right? When you're focused, when you're focused on position and power. Rather than humble service. So they had lack of understanding. They didn't, and they, they didn't ask for, for help. So Jesus, second time, he said, I'm gonna die, guys. I'm gonna rise on the third day. Why didn't they ask? Why didn't they just say, what do you mean, Jesus? You're gonna die. That doesn't make sense to us. We heard you say that the other day. You said, you're saying it again. What do you mean by that? They were afraid to ask. They were afraid to ask him. So they just, they went along with it. They didn't understand and they didn't ask for help to understand. Why not? Were they, were they embarrassed of their ignorance that by now they should understand the simple gospel truth that Jesus came to die for sinners and lay his life down and he's going to rise again? Shouldn't they know that by now? Were they in denial? Were they in denial that their, their Messiah, their rabbi who they've been walking with is going to be gone? He's going to, he's going to die. That were they in denial or did they think it was just metaphorical speaking, metaphorical speech? You know, he's going to, you know, die and take up his cross in a metaphorical sense uh, and, and, and rise. What, what was going on there? Well, they, they didn't ask because they were afraid. And, and I don't know exactly why uh, or what exactly what was behind that. If they were embarrassed or, or they didn't want to get corrected for, for not knowing what they probably could have or should have known at this point. William Lane in, uh, in his commentary says, it's striking that after each one of these three major prophecies of the passion of the, the passion, the evangelist inserts, there's three places in Mark where Jesus speaks about his death and his resurrection. Mark 8, Mark 9 here, and then in Mark chapter 10. He inserts the response of one of the three disciples who were closest to Jesus, Peter, John, and James. Mark shows in this way that even the most privileged of the disciples failed to understand what the passion signified for their life and mission. So here's how we know they missed it. Here, here's in, in, in their behavior uh, some evidence that their beliefs didn't line up, or that, that they hadn't gotten it. Our beliefs affects our behavior. 
Our perspective affects our practice. Jesus just told him he's going to die and he's going to rise again. You would think that they would be focused on that. Now, I think uh, Matthew mentions that they were sorrowful and, and rightfully so. They should feel sorry like Jesus is going to die. But that wasn't the focus of their conversation on the, on the trip after hearing this news again. What were they focused on? It's kind of funny. They argued, verse 33, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Again, they're silent. They're silent. They don't, they're not answering. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was, who was the greatest. So we see Jesus calling them to account for their immaturity. Their immaturity and their pride and their focus on uh, their kingdom, their position, right? We see him calling them into account. He asked them the question, not because he didn't know what was going on, but he asked the question to give them an opportunity to confess and then to, to give the opportunity for teaching. That would have been a great opportunity for confession. Jesus, we're sorry. We were, we were focused on who's going to be the greatest. Jesus was going to die, right? And they're thinking about their position. They're thinking about their place in the kingdom, their place in the, the, the cabinet, if you will, in the administration, the Messiah's administration. Who's, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to uh, call the shots when Jesus is gone? And so he took that time to explain to them. They were also, in this passage, they were territorial. John says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop them. Can you imagine this? I mean, this is immaturity here. I mean, what's wrong with, is there anything wrong with casting out demons? We want, we want the, the works of Satan to be destroyed. Well, it bothered the disciples for some reason. They didn't want them casting, this guy casting out demons because he wasn't with the 12 there. He wasn't following them. And so they were exclusive. They were territorial, ter- territorial, sectarian. They were, uh, and Jesus says, don't stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of, to me, uh, of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, in Luke chapter 9, there's one more blooper that we see from the disciples uh, they're rejected by some Samaritans and they ask Jesus, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? You want us to use that authority and that power to uh, to bring judgment on these guys because they rejected us? And so I love this about the Bible that we get the bloopers of the godly men and women in Scripture, not only the victories and not only the ways that God uses them, but we get the bloopers, we get the sins, we get the failures, and we get to see God graciously working with and through broken men and women in Scripture. And that should bring some comfort to those of us who have recognized that we're broken too. And we, we have sinful flaws as well, and we need grace. We need grace to pardon us, and we need grace to empower us to be who God has called us to be. And so we see Jesus teaching them about true greatness and, and teaching them about harmony and unity. Uh, notice what he says in verse 35. So Jesus gave them a prediction of his death and resurrection. Now he's giving them 
perspective on what true greatness is. He's, he's already displayed it. They've seen him walk in it. They've seen him use his power to help people, not harm people, to serve people, not to, not to, uh, hold people down. Jesus has already been walking in this and he's going to ultimately display that greatness and going to the cross for us and being the sacrifice for our sins. But he says, if any one of you, he, he sits down and he brings them, he calls them in. He's like, all right, guys, come on. Right, come on in. Let's listen up. Got something to tell you. Now, this is important for the disciples to get. Because it wouldn't be too long before Jesus dies and is resurrected and then he's going to be ascended back to heaven. And they, they need to walk in humility and service that they've seen Jesus walk in if they're going to carry on the ministry effectively. He said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If you want to be first, be last of all and servant of all. Isn't it human nature to want to be first in the line? You know that the crowds are coming and you want to beat the crowds and you want to get first in the line so you don't have to wait, right? Uh, isn't it human nature to, to step on others and put others down and ignore others to get first in line, to do whatever it takes so that you can be first? And in the, the eyes of the world, Greatness is often gauged on position, power, possessions. How many people you have reporting to you, your net worth, your, your fame, your Twitter followers, Instagram followers, Facebook followers, uh, your, your, uh, physical appearance. The, the world has these standards of what greatness looks like, and we've all been affected by that warped understanding, that warped perspective. And Jesus is teaching his disciples because they too have been affected by, quote, the, the, the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, the, 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 the ways of the world. They've been affected by it. They needed to have their minds renewed. They needed to take on the kingdom perspective. And Jesus taught a kingdom perspective that was also, that was often a paradox. The kingdom perspective is a paradox to, to the, 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 the world. Like we, they, we, the way up is down. The way to be first is to be last. The way to be great is to serve. The way to, to, to have life is to, to die. The way to be happy and blessed is to give, right? And so there's these paradoxes in the kingdom of God that Jesus often taught. And to illustrate this, he called a child to himself and he put him in the mist. And taking him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one such in my Name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What's the significance of this? Here's this objective lesson that Jesus is using. Okay? Children are often overlooked and disregarded in culture. And even in first century culture, right? They're often overlooked and disregarded because they don't have high position, lots of possessions, 
They don't have a whole lot to offer you and I who are adults. And so we tend to focus on adults who have position, power, possessions, right? And Jesus is teaching us the perspective of greatness. If you want to live out a life of greatness, then don't just gravitate towards those who have the position, the power, and the possessions. Gravitate to the marginalized, to the overlooked. Gravitate towards those that you can serve and contribute towards and enhance their lives by giving them your attention, your encouragement, your resources, your knowledge, your wisdom, your listening ear. Children are precious to Jesus. We see later on and uh, Jesus says that, you know, you, you have to... Um, Become as humble as a child to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. Matthew 18. Uh, when the disciples were, were, were kind of trying to protect Jesus and keep, keep the children being brought to him to get pray, blessed and prayed over, like they, they push back and they're trying to not let them come. And Jesus says, no, let them come for such is the kingdom of heaven. Right? And so I love how Jesus points us to how we are to treat children, but also how we are to take on humility and childlikeness, childlike faith, like a child. And so true greatness, uh, one theologian says, true greatness entails caring about people, insignificant people like children, because Jesus himself is concerned about them. When one cares about such people, one is really receiving Jesus and God himself. Jesus was one of the first ever to see how essentially precious any person is, particularly a young child. A concern for children was not invented by the welfare state. It goes back to the teaching of Jesus. I think it's interesting to note that historically, because Jesus taught these things and walked in these things, practiced these things and taught this perspective. It's interesting to note how throughout history, Christians have have engaged in orphan care, caring for the sick, the orphan, disabled, the, the marginalized, the overlooked throughout history. So many hospitals that have been started in the name of Christianity. Uh, so many schools and places of education that have been started in the name of education to help educate those who need education. Jesus teaches us that the path to greatness is humble service and particularly service to the o- overlooked and the marginalized. David Garland says that this section teaches that the Christian community should exemplify a spirit of lowliness Instead of swaggering cockiness, acceptance of others instead of exclusion, humble service instead of haughty insolence, and harmonious relations instead of strife and division. So humility, Jesus taught us to be humble. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. He humbly served others. Warren Wearsby says that true humility means knowing yourself Accepting yourself, being yourself, your best self, and giving yourself for others. Okay? Don't try to 
be somebody you're not or pretend to be somebody you're not. Accept who God has made you. Acknowledge that. See yourself accurately as, as God, soberly as God has made you. And just be comfortable to be yourself. Your best self. And in and, and being yourself, authentically love and humbly serve others. Amen? And so this is the path to true greatness. God exalts the humble. But he brings down the proud and those who exalt themselves. And so let's be those who follow the way of Jesus, which is humility. I love in um, um, a couple, Moses and Paul uh, exemplify, um, at one point Moses, there were, some, there were some who were prophesying. And Moses says, I, I wish that all of God's people would prophesy. So in contrast to the disciples who were like, hey, do you want us to stop this guy? We stopped this guy who was casting out demons. Um, you know, this, this didn't seem right. Moses is like, I wish that all of God's people would prophesy. Jesus is like, whoever's not against us is, is for us, right? And then Paul, when he's in prison, Paul's in prison in Philippians chapter 1. There were people who were preaching Christ, but they were doing so with distorted motives, with impure motive, selfish ambition, and out of rivalry. And Paul said, you know what? I just rejoice that Christ is being preached. He had this perspective that it's about Jesus, and we're going to exalt Jesus, even if people are trying to inflict me through preaching Christ and, and come against me and, and, and try to outdo me by preaching Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's not about me. And we should have the same attitude individually and as a church. We should be those who seek to exalt Jesus and take the low place. And allow God to exalt us in due time. And trust that he will. So lastly, Jesus promised reward for serving. In verse 41, he said, truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means Lose his reward. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. God rewards faithfulness. God rewards humble, faithful service. And so when you feel like God doesn't see and no one else sees and you feel underappreciated, undervalued, know that God sees you and that God will reward you. God sees you and God will reward you. Even for the simplest of acts of giving water, a drink, to those who belong to him. And remember that when you receive a child, you re it's as if you're receiving Jesus or the, or the Father. I think this also can uh, point to um, the, the value of adoption uh, as Christians. That Jesus is teaching here can can point to the value of, of adoption and, and and taking in a child into your family and giving of your resources, your time and your energy and taking the risk. If you're in the fostering situation, taking the risk of that child being taken away after having them for a season, but doing it out of love because you value that little human life that God made in his image. And Jesus taught us to 
to value those little ones and to treat them as precious. Because that's how he's treated us. And we want to return that grace and that kindness by treating others the same, including those who seem to be able to give us nothing, but only draw from our resources and our energy and our time. We want to pour in to them. We want to search for them and look for them. So let me close an application. I know it's hot. I told you this is going to be a short series or short sermon. So let me try to land the plane with some application. We're getting close. Got some cold drinks for the dads, pops for pops. Make sure and get those after. So let the gospel sink into your ears and penetrate your heart and lead you to live in harmony with others. If you're contentious in your relationships, you're not in step with the gospel. It hasn't sunk in and penetrated your heart and worked its way out in your relationships. If you're quarrelsome and argumentative with those inside the church and inside your community and those outside of the community, you're not keeping in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. He said, a servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but he must be able to teach, gentle, with humility and uh, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance. They may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And so don't be quarrelsome and argumentative like the disciples were. They were internally amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest. And they were externally about the outsiders of those who were casting out demons who weren't in their inner circle. Live in harmony with others. Let's keep in step with the gospel. Receive one another as Christ has received you. Receive one another for the glory of God. And this should especially be displayed in our closest relationships such as marriage and family. Those we work with. Those in our church, in our community, live in harmony with one another. Live humbly before God and before others. See yourself like God sees you and accept how you are. Don't try to pretend to be something you're not. Be greater than you really are. Let God exalt you and affirm the greatness in your life that he's called you to walk in. And live in service to the marginalized. Now here's some scriptures here to live in harmony. To live humbly in harmony. Romans twelve sixteen I think summarizes this section well. And I got a couple different translations here. Romans twelve sixteen says live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The message says get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. The NLT says live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. All right? Don't, now, don't start nudging the person next to you if you feel like that's for them. And so let's live humbly in harmony with one another. By pride comes nothing but contention, the Proverbs tell us. So if you're, if you're contentious in your relationships, and that's just an ongoing thing with you, it's a pattern that you're contentious with people that you work with, people in your family, 
and you don't seem to have peace in your relationships, it could be a significant indicator that you, you're a prideful person. Because prideful people cause contention everywhere they go. I mean, pride just destroys relationships. But humility provides a space where relationships flourish and connect and, and have peace and harmony and growth. And lastly, take on the perspective of Christ. Philippians 2, I'll read this in the NLT. It says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Do not look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Okay? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress. Don't try to impress others. I mean, I think it's, it's crazy how, how we can exert so much energy to impress others. To impress others with what we know, with what we have, with what we can do. Greatness isn't about how smart we are or how much we have or how fast we can run or, or how far we can hit a ball or, or how funny we are and how well we can entertain and keep people captivated with our stories and with our jokes. Greatness isn't about how fit we are, how healthy we are, how successful we are on our jobs. Greatness is about humble service to those who are, seem insignificant to the world. Loving those around you, taking uh, interest in, quote, the little people, the people that are overlooked. And giving them attention, showing value to them. I think practically we can do this by when a, when a child comes up to us, when, when, when we're around our own children, dads, this is Father's Day, you know, taking the time to just listen to your children instead of being so preoccupied with your career and trying to be something great in the world in your career that you, that you neglect time with your children and listening to them, slow down. Humble yourself. Serve those lowly ones around you, like your own children, but also the children of others, other little little kids. And you know, as as a new Christian, I remember the first ministry that I uh, officially got in, a part of and, and engaged in was children's ministry, inner city children's ministry. I think that's just the it's a great place to start for for so many Christians. Is like you see a need. There's so much need when it comes to serving children and helping out with children. We have need, you know, uh, now helping out in our children's ministry. <laughs> uh, there's just so much need, and it can be overwhelming. It can be overwhelming just trying to meet the needs of children around us because children are needy, right? They need love and care and attention. They need resources, and, you, and, and they need people who will coach them and mentor them and walk with them and encourage them and listen to them. Um, but, but I love that, that, that as I gave myself to, to serve in children's ministry over the years that I began to see how God had gifted me and my spiritual gifts began to come out and, and, and I wasn't trying to discover what are my spiritual gifts? What am I called to? What's my calling in life? I just saw needs around me 
And there was a bus ministry that picked up a bus of uh, kids from the projects in East Dallas on Friday nights. And I jumped in and served in on Saturday nights. And I, and I jumped in and served and I saw opportunity to serve those who needed encouragement, needed help. Find the little people around you and, and serve them. Give them your attention. Give them your love. Give them your care. Um, and another thing you can do is you, you can adopt uh, those who are overseas, orphans who are overseas. You could talk to, to Brianne um, or you, you can support, you can send support and care. Uh, there's many ministries that can, that help facilitate connections with those in other countries that are, that are needy. Uh, so if that's something you feel led to do, an application, you'd like to serve those who are underprivileged, under-resourced. Uh, we can we can help make that connection, and so let me close because I've I said this was going to be a short sermon. <laughs> so Father, we want to learn the way of humility and, and service, the way of Jesus, and so would you lead us in that? Would you of what it looks like for us, each of our families? each of us individually, to walk in Christ-likeness, to walk in the steps of Jesus and love and serve those around us, those who are overlooked by the crowd, those who feel unseen. And may we live with an awareness that you see us as we go to those places, that our labor of love is not in vain, as we seek to serve others in your name, that you will reward. Work through our lives, God, to bless our community, to bless this city. May we be instruments of your grace, your hands and feet in this world. In Christ's name we pray.